Good morning. I'll be reading this morning from Mark 4. We're reading the last section, um, starting in verse 35, up to the very end of the chapter. On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? May the Lord add wisdom and blessing to his word. Let's pray. Father, you are worthy of all praise. You are mighty, almighty. You are wise. You are good. And you are holy. Father, you are merciful and just. And you are love. Lord, we come before you today a broken, fallen, terrible people. There is not one of us who has not sinned this morning. Not one of us is without sin today. And we confess this before each other and before you, seeking your forgiveness through the shed blood of Christ. Lord, thank you that we have the hope of Christ, the promises of Scripture. Lord, help us to desire you more and more as you reveal more and more of yourself to us. That we would align more and more of our selves to you. And I pray today as scripture is read, you would reveal to us those things that are still lurking, still have strongholds in us, that they would be brought to the light and we would confess them to you and be cleansed. Lord, I thank you that as a people, you are uniting us together. And I pray that that would give you glory. Amen. 
Psalm 107. In it, the writer gives several examples of how the steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. And he calls on the redeemed of the Lord to give thanks for their rescue in times of trouble. He then lists the dangers of the desert and of prison and of darkness and of fools who suffer from their own sinful decisions. And then he writes this about the sea. This is 107, starting at verse 23. Some went down to the sea in ships, doing business on the great waters. They saw the deeds of the Lord, his wondrous works in the deep. For he commanded and raised the stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. They mounted up to heaven. They went down to the depths. Their courage melted away in their evil plight. They reeled and staggered like drunken men and were at their wit's end. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad that the waters were quiet, and he brought them to their desired haven. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to, his, to the children of man. Let them extol him in the congregation of the people and praise him in the assembly of the elders. We are picking up today in Mark 4, just looking at the last little story that ends the chapter. With Jesus in the boat, I can actually do this. This is a campfire favorite. With Jesus in the boat, you can smile at the storm when you're sailing home. And I don't know why we're rowing when we're sailing, but that's what I learned in grade seven. Jesus in the boat, you can smile at the storm. Up to this point, his disciples have seen some amazing things. They've witnessed confrontations with demons, the healing of diseases, impossible to heal diseases, let me say, leprosy, paralysis, and disfigurement with the withered hand. They've also heard astounding explanations of Scripture, taught from the position of understanding and utter authority. They have witnessed the culmination of these signs and wonders, and is found in chapter 3, and that has led to Jesus' rejection by the religious leaders of the day. Next, in chapter 4, which represents the second largest teaching discourse in Mark, it's dedicated to telling the disciples that while the kingdom of God has arrived in him, the kingdom will not appear or flourish in ways that they would expect. Using parables, Jesus communicates to his disciples that the message of the kingdom, the gospel, is to be spread to all peoples regardless as to whether they think the listeners will be responsive or not. This is from the parable of the seed. We as disciples are to bear witness. We are to share the gospel again and again and again. He teaches them that his light will not remain hidden forever, 
from the parable of the lamp and the measuring basket. He is slowly revealing more and more of himself until his final glorious revelation. He further teaches that the kingdom of God will grow almost as in secret, in the same way as a seed sprouts and leafs out and finally produces a kernel of grain, but to rest assured that the kingdom will produce its intended harvest. And finally, Jesus teaches that the kingdom will grow from humble beginnings like a tiny mustard seed into a large tree big enough to give peace and place and protection to its benefactors. And then comes the disciples' first real-world test of faith and understanding. He takes sailors to the sea. Mark 4, 35 says, On that day when evening had come, he said to them, Let us go across to the other side. On that day leads us to believe that all the events of chapter 4 have occurred in the framework of one day. So having taught the large crowds from dawn till dusk, from the prow of a boat, as the sun sets, Jesus says, let's make for the other side of the lake. And the disciples obey. Verse 36, and leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was, and other boats were with him. Once again, Mark very much wants his audience to see that it takes almost extraordinary measures for Jesus to leave the masses. He must escape them by boat in order to find solace and time with his chosen circle. And so they took him with them, weighing acre and loosing for sea as the crew made for the North Shore. And other boats were with him. We never hear about these other vessels again. We presume that they made it okay. But for however succinct Mark is, he's careful not to waste a single word in the whole gospel, Mark gives us extra details, more than the other gospels do, which really makes this a personal story, the true experience of one who was actually with Jesus, the time of day that there were other boats with them, where Jesus was laying, Verse 37, and a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling. Now, the Sea of Galilee, also known as Lake Tiberias, is known for sudden squalls. And that is such a weak word to us landlubbers. A squall is terrifying, not a little cuddly thing. Just like tempest seems like a romantic word, it is not. At any rate, there is a squall upon the lake. And Galilee is the second lowest lake in the world behind the Dead Sea. And it is the very lowest freshwater lake. The Sea of Galilee is 700 feet below sea level, and the nearby, very nearby mountains are 600 feet above sea level. But only 70 miles away, I should say kilometers for us, 70 kilometers away, Mount Hermon rises more than 9,000 feet above sea level. 
this geography makes for a very unpredictable set of weather. Even now, when tourists get onto a boat on the Sea of Galilee, they will be warned of the same dangers that the disciples faced. So that night, the winds grew strong and the waves grew tall, so much so that the boat began to sink and the disciples began to panic. Verse 38, but he was in the stern, asleep on a cushion. And they woke him and said, teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? This is the desperate call of people drowning. Lord, help us, we are perishing. You may remember a number of years back, a little commercial for English lessons. And it showed a very young Coast Guard recruit being ushered into a little room full of screens and dials, and a senior officer giving way too brief to be helpful instructions in German, and then leaving. Das ist Computer, das ist Radar, das ist this, das ist that. And as soon as the senior officer leaves, the machinery broadcasts a voice. Mayday, mayday, can you hear us? Can you hear us? Is anyone listening? We are sinking. We are sinking. And the new recruit looks around for help, and then he sheepishly pushes a button and slowly begins to speak in the microphone. Hello? This is the German Coast Guard? And the voice repeats, we are sinking, we are sinking. To which the young Ricky says, what are you thinking about? <laughs> Matthew, sorry, Mark 4.23, if anyone has ears, let them hear, right? Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? The storm lifted up the waves of the sea and they mounted up to heaven. They went down to the depths and their courage melted away in their evil plight. They reeled and they staggered like drunken men. They were at their wits end. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble. I want to stop everything in this moment and focus on a single truth. We think that struggle is a detour in life. But read scripture, it is the highway. Struggle is the road, it is the sea, it is the bridge. Oftentimes it is the only path to sanctification in this life. Pain, hardship, difficulties, failure, brokenness, loneliness, uncertainty, death, loss, Suffering and sorrow are the highway of life and not the detour. In this moment, ask yourself if God is who he says he is, if he is in total control, undeniably sovereign, king of kings and Lord of all, and if the Lord acts like the Bible says he does, can anything be a detour? Is anything an interruption, unexpected, an intrusion, or unforeseen? Is it interference in your life if you're in Christ? And the answer is no. 
God knows what he is doing. He is omniscient. God is able to do what he wants. He is omnipotent. And God is working all things for the good of those who trust in him. Romans 8, 28. He is good and full of grace and mercy. So Jesus is in the boat. And we can ask, is the storm an interruption? Scholars are quick to point out many parallels between this story and that of Jonah. Both stories have a prophet entering a boat. In both, there comes a mighty storm. In both, the prophet falls asleep. In both, the men of the ship cry out, what do you mean, you sleeper, from Jonah? Which is translated in Mark, do not care that we are perishing. But in one, Jonah says, throw me in the sea and it will become calm. And in the other, Jesus yells, stop. And the sea instantly becomes glass. Or what if Jesus didn't even raise his voice, like those really good parents that lower their voice when they want their kids to listen? What if all he did was whisper? Verse 39, and he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, peace, be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. And the silence was deafening. Have you ever found yourself in a moment so quiet that you can hear your own body's machinery? Heart slowly thumping. Air entering and exiting your nostrils. Ears gently singing. Mine's called tinnitus. It's a little louder than singing. But perhaps you are young enough to still hear the mechanics of your body functioning. That was the stillness. That was their peace. And he said to them, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, who is this then that even the wind and the sea obeys him? I would like you to consider this. As terrifying as the fear was that gripped the disciples in the midst of the torrent and storm, the great peace that they experienced was shattered by an even bigger terror. The Sea of Galilee is 21 kilometers long and 20, sorry, and 13 kilometers wide. And I'm getting those actions wrong right now. But, but there in the little boat stood someone bigger than that lake. And I wrote those words and I can barely understand them myself. Someone stood amongst them bigger than the lake, bigger than the storm. Imagine the fear and the shock Peter or Matthew or Judas would have experienced in that moment as they stared at Jesus and mentally compared the power of the raging sea to the power of this man in their midst who commanded it. Who then is this? Even the wind and the sea obey him. No person is bigger than the lake or the wind, right? And yet we sing, who has held the ocean in his hands? Who has numbered every grain of sand? 
Kings and nations tremble at his voice. All creation rises to rejoice. I found myself listening to Josh's sermon on Genesis 1 this week, and in it he gives a quick summary of the Babylonian creation myth, the Enuma Elish. It isn't true, it's their myth, but this is what the ancient Mesopotamian world believed about how the world came to be. In it, it tells how their chief god Marduk, their champion, defeats the saltwater god, the chaos god Tiamat and he tears her in half to make the waters above and the waters below. And yet in those waters, her fragments and her little baby gods, as Josh explained, still dwell and control all the waters of the earth. And because water is important, these gods must be appeased. Genesis, then, is an account written as a polemic a corrective to say, actually, there's only one God, the maker of heaven and earth, whose spirit hovered over the face of the waters, the chaos. And in Genesis 1, 6 to 8, it says, let there be an expanse. This is what God says in the midst of the waters. Let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And so it was. And God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening and there was morning the second day. The strong parallel here is that God speaks and creation listens, and also Jesus speaks and creation listens. Throughout the scriptures, the oceans, the abyss, the seas are represented as evil. Isaiah 17, 12, ah, the thunder of many peoples, they thunder like the thundering of the sea. Ah, the roar of the nations, they roar like the, mighty, like the roar of mighty waters. Or Job 38, verse 8, who shut up the sea behind doors when it burst forth from the womb? And verse 11, when I said, this far you may come and no further. Here is where your proud waves halt. In the Bible, streams and rivers are good. They are given for refreshing. Psalm 23, he leads me beside still waters and restores my soul. And Revelation 22, the angel showed me the river of the water of life bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the city, the streets of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. Talking about ancient mythologies of the sea and even biblical patterns of good and evil waters, it should be noted that in Revelation 21.1, John gives the final word on the matter. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. Meaning when Jesus finally judges all and makes right of all things in his glory, there will be no more chaos, no more confusion or discord. The final resolution 
is that the waters of turmoil and violence will be silenced for good. Christ's rebuke of the storm on Galilee, peace, be still, becomes a foretaste of his ultimate victory over evil. And this is where today's scripture is joined by the gospel of all scripture, where the news or main principle of this little story points us toward the good news of Christ's matchless redemption. There is utter victory in Christ's death and resurrection. Christ's rule over all things will one day be fully accomplished. Our passage contains the word great in three places. In Greek, the word is mega, which we have appropriated into English, mostly to talk about big gulps and lotteries and hair care products. But mega is Greek for great. And Mark describes three things in this account that are great. The storm from verse 37. There was a great, a great windstorm arose. The calm in verse 39. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. The fear in verse 41. And they were filled with great fear. And you would think that the order of things should be different, that the great storm would cause great fear, and when it was quelled, that there would be great peace. Yet have we, touched, we have touched on this earlier. The great storm only excited some fear, but the great calm elicited great fear. We gather today to proclaim that Mark got it right. The storms of life are nothing compared to the peace that, be, that can be found in life when you submit your life to the author of life. In whom do you fear? In every way, Jesus is showing his disciples and through them, the whole world, that he is God. He has the power, the capacity, the knowledge and ability only attributed to God. This story of Christ calming the sea is the first in a set of three that advance our understanding of who Jesus is. This first miracle on Galilee shows Jesus has power over nature. Our next sermon from Mark will further show his power over the demonic when he and the disciples enter the land of the Gerasenes and he exercises a legion of demons residing in one man. And finally, Jesus asserts his power over the grave itself when he raises Jairus' daughter from death. Furthermore, just like the first string of miracles ends in his rejection by religious leaders, these three ultimate miracles will end in his rejection by his own people when even his hometown, Nazareth, dismisses him. And you and I have a similar choice before us. Will we see the miracle and might of Christ and reject it? Or see his power over all nature and force and problem and choose to worship him? 
Will you cast your cares on him as you submit more and more of your life to his sovereignty and might? Will the storms and the unknowns in your life be the extent of your fear? Or will Christ? Will you waste your fear on small things? Or will you fear the great king? You may stand before demons or disease or the forces of nature, but your fear ought to be placed upon the Lord. You have heard the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. But add these verses to your arsenal. Proverbs 14, 26. In the fear of the Lord, one has strong confidence and his children will have a refuge. And 1427. The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life that one may turn away from the snares of death. Uh, something I didn't write, but probably should have. In the early church, the first few centuries after Christ, there was great persecution. And the church picked up on this verse, this phrase, this story, rather. In their art and in their literature, the church saw themselves as a boat with Christ in it. And the waves would smash them as they were persecuted for his name. But they knew who was in the boat with them. They knew who to fear. We are to fear the great king, but if he is your savior, you ought to have no other fear. I'm going to read the first 13 verses of Isaiah 43. This is about God, but make no, no mistake that this is about his Christ as well. Listen and try to pick out the many parallels here that are found in Christ's ministry as well. But now, thus says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name, and you are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba in exchange for you, because you are precious in my eyes. You are honored and I love you, I give men in return for you, peoples in exchange for your life. Fear not, I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east and from the west. I will gather you, and I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, do not withhold. 
bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth, everyone who, calls by, who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. Bring out the people who are blind, yet have eyes, who are deaf, yet have ears. All the nations gather together, all the peoples assemble. Who among them can declare this and show us the former things? Let them bring their witnesses to prove them right. Let them hear and say it is true. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servants whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me no God was formed, nor shall there be any after. I, I am the Lord, and besides me there is no Savior. I declared and saved and proclaimed when there was no strange God among you, and you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and I am God. Also henceforth, I am he. There is none who can deliver from my hand. I work, and who can turn back? Let us pray. Lord, too often we waste our fear on little things. We give it too great uh, value and a hold on us. Lord, open our eyes and our hearts, soften them so that we can obey you, desire to fear you, want to live for you. Lord, thank you for the blessing of this truth that Christ is with us. Amen.